Workers' Comp Matters, the podcast dedicated to the laws, the landmark cases, and the people that make up the diverse world of workers' compensation. Here are your hosts, Judd and Alan Pierce. Well, welcome to another edition of Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. I'm your host, Alan Pierce, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Judson Pierce. We're both with the law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. And today's topic, I think you'll find uh, quite interesting. The College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers is an organization that was established in 2007 to recognize contributors to the workers' compensation system. Several years ago, the college instituted a student writing competition. This year in 2022, perhaps in recognition of his contributions to the development of workers' compensation law 50 years ago when the National Commission on State Workmen's Compensation Laws issued its landmark report, Professor John F. Burton Jr. had the honor bestowed upon him to have the Student Writing Competition Award named in his honor. So it is now the Professor John F. Burton Jr. Student Writing Competition. So I am happy to introduce our guest, the winner of the first Burton Award for student writing, uh, Simon Cow. By way of background, Simon is uh, currently in his last few months of law school at the Pennsylvania State University, Penn State Law. He is on the journal, the Arbitration Law Review, as the Executive External Communications Editor. Uh, He's written a few things, one of which we will be discussing today. Before attending Penn State Law, Simon worked as a staff representative for a teacher's union in Albuquerque, New Mexico for over five and a half years. I think uh, you wrote that it was the 30th largest in the in the country. And there he represented teachers handling grievances and administrative hearings and arbitration proceedings. All told, he was able to win over $1.2 million in back pay for educators through either settlement agreements or, or hearing awards. And his um, advocacy and his passion for working people is apparent, and it began at an early age growing up in a union household. And uh, I guess our paths are similar in that, you know, all around the kitchen table, listening to my father talk about his cases and representing injured workers led me to uh, try to follow in his footsteps, and and I can understand the passion. So, uh He is uh, also a two-time recipient of the Peggy Browning Fund Fellowships, where he's worked with the AFSCME, American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, and the American Federation of Teachers. And as I said, he has uh, been an executive communications editor for the Arbitration Law Review at Penn State. Thank you very much for being here, Simon. Thank you for uh, having me. I'm honored to, to be on the podcast with both of you. Simon, for our audience, let me just announce the title of your paper, Fighting the Tide. Overcoming the Rebuttable Presumption of Intoxication in the Age of Marijuana. Those of you who listen to this podcast know that we have done a podcast or two in the past on the intoxication defense as it is used in workers' comp to allow insurers to be able to avoid payment when there is evidence that the injured employee somehow was culpable in his own or her own injury by virtue of being intoxicated and the various implications of that defense legally and otherwise. We also have done a show on marijuana and workers' comp, primarily from the standpoint is if if marijuana is prescribed as an analgesic or something to help the treatment of a work-related injury, should those costs be paid for by the comp carrier or 
uh, there are compelling public policy reasons, given the uncertain nature of, of marijuana federally as being a legal product. You have sort of blended those two in terms of if there is marijuana or THC detected in a victim of a work injury, to what extent, if any, is the existing state of law regarding intoxication applicable to THC versus alcohol or other types of drugs? So give us an overview as to the general theme or themes of your paper. First and foremost, there's two overarching sort of things happening in the United States. One is the ubiquity of legalization efforts throughout the country to either legalize medicinal or recreational use of marijuana. Also, of course, you know, 49 states having required uh, workers' compensation statutes. So the overarching theme in, in the paper that I wrote has to do with the two competing policy issues. One is to have a swift remedy for injured workers while also uh, providing for the medicinal use or recreational use of, of marijuana. It, right now, As it stands right now, there are about 36 states that have legalized in some form, either medicinally or recreationally, marijuana. In those states, there are approximately at least seven states that have uh, what's called the rebuttable presumption of intoxication once an injured worker tests positive or has THC in their system. The rebuttable presumption essentially bars, uh, or I argue that it essentially bars many workers from being able to recover from their workplace injury. One of the reasons why the preclusion exists is because it's detectable in your system, but unlike alcohol, it doesn't, it can stay in your system for much, much longer, but yet not have any deleterious effects on your ability to perform your work or even uh, cause an injury. So how is this preclusion or this rebuttable presumption a preclusion from someone receiving compensation? Yeah, so uh, that's that's a great point, and that's exactly uh, that is precisely the argument that that I make. In that, you know, there there might be a more reliable sort of uh, indicia for alcohol, perhaps if somebody tests positive or you know has alcohol present in their system, just because of the timing and the metabolize, you know, whether alcohol is metabolized within a person's system after they test positive for alcohol uh, shortly thereafter after their injury. Uh, THC, as you mentioned, it can stay in someone's system for like a month, depending on a whole number of uh, biological factors with the injured worker. The rebuttable presumption within some of these sta- uh, states and in the statutes uh, sometimes have clear and convincing evidence to overcome that rebuttable presumption, and they sometimes have a preponderance of the evidence. In many cases, there are instances where the preponderance of the evidence is a little bit higher than just the preponderance. At least in, when some of these claims have been adjudicated, they really require... It, to me, from someone reading uh, some of the uh, adjudications, they tend to require more than just nullifying the evidence that the person was actually intoxicated. I, I think one other point that you sort of mentioned is, you know, the intoxicating effect is is important there because what Alan mentioned just a moment ago about you know, having the deleterious effects or the intoxicating effects of the uh, chemical in someone's system, it's sort of their own, I mean, there's, you know, some fault that's uh, at play in that situation. 
But in the situation where it's no longer act or it's no longer intoxicating the worker, it's it's hard to say that the you know the person is at fault for something they did long in the past. One of the beauties of your paper is you have it extensively footnoted and reference to a wide variety of other articles, studies, uh, law reviews, statutory references, and case law. And to that point, I'm looking uh, in your article, you actually state that alcohol detection using current technology, which by the way is also, breathalyzer is also a hot topic in terms of reliability, but it's pretty much that in field sobriety tests as well as blood tests are the the standards. Uh, You say current technology for alcohol may provide more reliable evidence of recent alcohol use and impairment. And you say there is currently no reliable analog for detecting marijuana impairment. And you actually cite that to to an article on drug testing for medical marijuana uses in the workplace. So, you know, the, the data that seems to be out there, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there are intoxicating properties in THC, but to without a way to measure that in a meaningful fashion could lead to a great variety of inequities, both in terms of our operations of motor vehicle as well as workplace injuries. So, you know, give us some examples of, of how that interplays. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point. I, I really tried to include uh, some of the science, some of the peer-reviewed articles that have arisen over the years in medicine and toxicology and whatnot to make sure that you know uh, uh, I wasn't you know just asserting things that <laughs> that, that I I know very, uh, admittedly know not enough about. But I think you know some of the authors of these works have again peer-reviewed articles that that demonstrate that the intoxicating effects of Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, um, or THC, better known, can have an intoxicating effect. And I think the important thing there is can. And and I I don't really, and and like you mentioned, you know, with breathalyzers and uh, field sobriety uh, tests and whatnot to test intoxication of workers, I, I, I mean... To me, whatever flaws that may exist in uh, in those tests and those scientific tests uh, to detect the presence of uh, chemicals in uh, in a person's uh, body, it, TAC is even less reliable than that. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I don't want to overstate the dearth of evidence that supports being able to detect a, a person's intoxication once they get a blood test or a urinalysis test. The the more common test that's performed is urinalysis once the worker is at the hospital or forced to provide a urinalysis, a urine sample after their accident. You spend some time in your paper as an example, and I think uh, you quote the Florida's workers' comp statute. So what I probably would like to do is have you uh, give us a brief overview of what the Florida statute provides. Then when we come back from the break, Jed will explore with you, you know, the case you cited in Florida uh, in terms of in in action and in an actual case, how that plays out. So just give us a, a quick overview of Florida statute, which probably isn't terribly different than many other states. Yeah. So in Florida, uh, they have a rebuttable presumption of intoxication. They also have uh, legalized at least medicinal marijuana. I think that there were some issues with their recreational marijuana passage uh, more recently. And that's sort of, I think, last I checked, sort of making its way to the courts. But at the very least, they have medicinal marijuana that's uh, been uh, legalized. And there, the rebuttable presumption can be overcome. So if, so after uh, a person, it, so number one, if 
an employer has a drug-free workplace system, a state-sanctioned drug-free workplace system, it can establish the rebuttable presumption of intoxication after the injured employee provides a urinalysis sample. Now, if they adhere to a chain of custody regime that's prescribed by statute, then it's a clear and convincing uh, standard that's uh, used that the injured worker would have to overcome in order to gain access to compensation benefits. By the way, that's a that's a very high standard, as any lawyers will know, that clear and convincing is probably the highest civil standard to overcome a presumption. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, I mean, and, and, and that sort of goes to what I sort of argue in the paper about almost an irrebuttable presumption, right? And in fact, I think, you know, one of the dissenting judges in Florida uh, mentioned that in their dissenting opinion. Nevertheless, uh, if they don't adhere to the chain of custody provisions, then uh, they have the preponderance of the evidence standard. So a little bit less so than the uh, clear, or not a little bit, but it's supposed to be at least less uh, rigorous than the clear and convincing standard. But nevertheless, when it comes to adjudications, such as the case in Florida, it can be even higher still. All right, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back to continue our discussion. We'll be right back. Get civil and you get a fast, custom-built website that looks great, brings you clients, and drops them right into your firm's systems. Civil partners perfectly with small firms by building the fastest sites in legal, handling digital marketing, enhancing your leads, and providing transparent analytics. They're civil to your other tech, too. Civil websites integrate with all legal case management systems, including Clio, Smokeball, MyCase, and Lawmatics. Get a free site audit with a no-obligation 15-minute demo about what Civil can do for your website. GetCivil.com. That's G-E-T-C-I-V-I-L-L-E.com. All rise with Civil. Mara's Case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Mara's Case's easy-to-use all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Mara's Case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit Mara'sCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E.com. And we're back with our special guest, Simon Cow. Uh, before the break, uh, Alan was uh, talking a little bit with you about the rebuttable presumption. You cite cases in, uh, I think, three states in, in, your, in your paper, right? Florida, Arkansas, and New Mexico. Uh, I'd like to take up Florida with you first. The first case you cited was the Brinson v. Hospital Housekeeping Services. Could you tell us a little bit about the outcome of that case and what it shows in terms of the injured worker's ability or inability to prove their case. Yeah, in uh, Brinson, a healthcare worker was walking outside and uh, they fell and were injured. Uh, they, I think they dislocated their shoulder. After dislocating their shoulder, they were quickly rushed to a hospital and they ended up having to provide a, a urinalysis test. Uh, subsequently, the employer used the affirmative defense of intoxication because their urinalysis uh, test revealed that they had THC in their system. 
Nevertheless, the supervisor and other witnesses, at least to the demeanor of the uh, injured employee's shoulder, didn't give any evidence of uh, intoxication after their injury or uh, or otherwise, other than some of the uh, nurse's reports that she uh, she was a little grumpy, as I think some of the words that were used in the opinion, they were able to establish a complete bar to uh, Brinson receiving workers' compensation benefits. Ultimately, what happened to overcome the rebuttable presumption of intoxication, Brinson had two experts, uh, toxicology experts, provide expert testimony that it was very unlikely that she was intoxicated at the time of the accident. The unfortunate part of this is that this merely severing the relationship between the intoxicating effects of THC and the injury was not enough to uh, overcome the rebuttable presumption. In this particular case, the workplace did have a drug-free workplace program, as the Florida state statute provides. However, uh, they didn't uh, abide by the chain of custody provisions. So uh, the standard in this case was preponderance of the evidence, but still the mere severance of of, uh, of evidence between the intoxicating effects, the potential intoxicating effects of the THC and the injury w- just weren't enough. So on appeal, Brinson was unable to uh, recoup their workers' compensation benefits. A couple of quick questions come to mind. First, I don't know, it's a medical one. Why would an injured worker who goes to the hospital automatically have to go through a urinalysis test? If he or she's coming in with a bad shoulder that got you know, injured at work, I query why they they would do that. And secondly, wouldn't it be just enough for statutes and legislatures to say to the insurer, you have an ability to deny a claim. You don't need a rebuttable presumption, which is impossible to overcome. Those two questions really sprung to mind when you were describing that uh, that case. And then you you in your to follow through, you go into another case in Florida called Allen v. Employee, Employee Bridge Holding Company, which is also akin to tipping the balance towards the insurer and towards the employer. Can you go over that case with us as well? Yeah. So I think to answer the first question, why should they automatically just require a urinalysis test? And I think it's a I think it's a totally valid question, considering the length of time in the medical in the biology essentially that uh, in workers and and the length that chemicals can stay in someone's system. And it, part of it is just a, a luck of the draw. I mean, in some situations, because some people might be able to metabolize THC or alcohol or any a number of substances more quickly than others. Nevertheless, uh, many states have essentially ratified that, saying that the employee is essentially is presumed to give consent to those tests. So I think in uh, Arkansas, for instance, which was the Allen case, I think they uh, I think in the statute, it's 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 presumed that they give consent to provide a, uh, a drug test, essentially. And the troubling thing in Allen is, you know, uh, there was a temp worker who uh, was working 
working in heavy machinery. They were uh, lifting conveyor belt parts uh, with a, uh, a hoist, essentially. They were supposed to hoist it using a control with one hand and balance it with another hand. This particular worker had trouble balancing uh, one conveyor belt piece. And, you know, the the way that I sort of imagine it is, you know, rather lengthy, unwieldy sort of uh, piece that's sort of floating in the air uh, and a temp worker, you know, provided by a temp agency. So this person, you know, probably didn't have, you know, a whole lot of uh, time, you know, on the job or or, or whatnot. Nevertheless, when they uh, were balancing the extremely heavy conveyor belt part, they ended up trying to balance it a little bit better with their body as opposed to just their hand, and uh, the piece fell on their hand. It was so heavy, in fact, that they had to get a forklift to lift it up off of his hand after it had fell and crushed his hand. Ultimately, a couple of his colleagues witnessed his demeanor. They didn't view the accident specifically, but they witnessed his demeanor as he was entering and as he was leaving. And no one suspected that he was under the influence or intoxicated at the time of the accident. But based on reports from an HR representative and another person who said that he had bloodshot eyes, the Arkansas uh, Workers' Compensation Board ended up or commission ended up denying the benefits. The troubling thing in all this as well is that the uh, ALJ below, the fact finder, found that his witnesses were more credible, essentially. But the uh, commission itself ruled against him, and that was ultimately upheld. So uh, it it had a lot of troubling facts. Still, you know, uh, the the one sort of fact I think that sort of went against him in, in in most of this was that he asked not to have blood drawn when he was getting treatment for his crushed hand. So that was, you know, I guess a little bit dubious. Maybe, you know, there might be some credibility issues with him in that instance. But I think the the more important thing in this case was his demeanor or his outward manifestation of potential intoxication. And his peers just didn't notice anything uh, different about him other than someone who uh, said he had bloodshot eyes. So what ended up happening was this person ended up getting uh, their uh, benefits denied, which was, to me, troubling. Yeah. And what was troubling is, and I think this goes to the entire focus of your paper here, is that uh, first of all, when he went to the hospital, he was given painkillers, which were opioids and, and morphine. But the drug test was, quote, positive for marijuana. It's very, if from that point forward, how much marijuana was it of a, an amount that would be normally one that would be altering someone's uh, cognitive abilities for impairment? And what are the standards and how do you detect that? And you know, then, of course, the other question is, I'm, I'm no medical expert, but I'm not sure bloodshot eyes are an indicia of marijuana use. Uh, they may be, I don't know, but certainly that's an issue on, you know, alcohol and perhaps some other type of use. So, yeah, I think the fact here is marijuana, whether it's legal or not, is still classified as a class A drug by the federal government. The statutes that have the presumptions for intoxication talk about intoxication, and they were all largely written before legalization of marijuana and probably didn't contemplate. So I know you close your paper with what you might recommend or suggest in terms of amending intoxication laws to take into account these uh, variances between alcohol intoxication and perhaps THC. So there's a lot of uneven sort of treatment for marijuana. 
right? One other case that I also describe was in the state of Arkansas as well, where, you know, a person tested positive for opiates. Yet the ultimate disposition in that case ended up being that the injured employee, over, you know, didn't even have to go through the rebuttable presumption. That was because, you know, part of it was because of a timing issue of when the urinalysis test uh, came into play. But uh, I think overall, there's there's a real mismatch in the legalization uh, or the treatment of one medicine to another. If the state has recognized that it's a medicine, which Arkansas has, and opiates are a medicine as well, then essentially they should be on equal footing. And I think that gets to, you know, the ultimate facts in uh, some of New Mexico's treatment of medical marijuana. I think they were the first state in the uh, in the country to permit medical marijuana as a uh, medicine, basically, for injured workers. And I think, you know, when it comes to the addictive properties of opiates and the opiate epidemic, essentially, that's going on in this country, you know, it, it, there are a whole lot of benefits, you know, both popularly, you know, through polls uh, conducted uh, throughout the country for uh, through the populace, essentially, and also just the chemical properties of THC itself. It can be used as a, a pain reliever that has far less addictive and uh, far less physical consequences to injured workers. I, I mentioned one person over in Florida who asked uh, to have a pain pump surgically implanted because they had addiction problems with opiates. And it became a real scourge on this person's life. And they ended up having to see 15 different doctors. And there was a lengthy review of uh, the request for their necessary health care as a result of their injury. There's a whole, I think there's a lot of evidence or uh, maybe evidence evidence isn't the right uh, term, but there's a whole lot of argument, I think, that could be used to uh, use medical marijuana in lieu of addictive opiates. So, Simon, if you could wave your magic wand and and, uh, redraft or craft a statute that dealt with presumptions, what would it look like? If I could wave my magic wand, I would say uh, just don't have them. There's already something there for an employer to use. And I think Judd mentioned that earlier. I mean, it, it just already exists. And so, you know, uh, you can use marijuana or a positive THC test as, you know, a factor, you know, that somebody, hey, you know, this was present in this person's system. But intoxication, I think, you know, implies that the person was actually intoxicated. I mean, you know, I don't know that it, I think it's more than implies, but, you know, the person was actually intoxicated. And that just isn't, you know, part of the the biology or the toxicology that goes along with THC in person's system. And marrying intoxication to impairment. Not all of intoxicated people are impaired and not all impaired people are intoxicated. So that confuses it. Simon, if somebody wants a copy of your paper, certainly they can get it by reaching out to Judd or me at Legal Talk Network at our Email address is apierce or jpierce at ppnlaw.com. Simon, if they wanted to contact you directly, how would they do that? They can email me at sxc6050 at psu.edu, and I can send them my paper or uh, answer any questions that they might have. Thank you very, very much for, for joining us today, and we look forward to uh, reading more of your articles in the future and congratulations in the next few months when you, uh, when you get your degree. And best the bar. Good luck. That's right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's been an honor. Open the Barbary books. Uh, <laughs> for sure. For sure. We'll do. <laughs> all right. For all of us here at uh, Workers' Comp Matters, thank you for joining us. Uh, we will talk again. And remember, make it a day that matters. Take care.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.